flash forward to the present. And what's happened is we have moved to a place of extreme disconnect between our true connection to nature and the stories that we live out and the way we organize our societies. And so that in this way, something like global warming is a symptom of this root cause, which is the illusion of separation. We believe we're separate from nature, so we destroy and consume nature. We don't realize that in the process, we're destroying and consuming ourselves. That's Joe Brewer, culture designer, researcher, and cognitive linguist, who's working to help create large-scale behavior change at the level of global civilization. And this is the emerging future. Okay, so let's get into the Emerging Future podcast. So what's this all about? So I'm going to be talking to people who are curious, compassionate, and courageous, who are sensing something different, something emerging. Am I the only one who's feeling like this, that we've got a lot of problems in the world, don't we? These are people who are really on the path of self-discovery, some of them further along than others, but who are sensing a way forward and who are embracing kind of the next phase in evolution and the next phase in themselves. They're changing the way that they think. They're letting go of old paradigms. They're letting come the desired future. I think our world needs to hear stories. We need to start telling ourselves new stories. We need to, we need to hear from unique change makers who are exerting their own agency in a positive and transformative way. I want to talk to people who are weird. <laughs> I want to talk to people who are wild, wacky, brilliant, who are empathetic. So I invite you to listen in on these conversations and learn with me. These are people who are in my neighborhood. I happen to live in, in one of the greatest cities in the world, Seattle, Washington. There are a bunch of people out here who are thinking differently. And they're not necessarily the ones who are getting the most attention. But these are people who are working hard to make change, to become the best they can be, and to really, you know, break paradigms and create the new world together. So if you like this conversation and you want to help support this podcast, check out the Patreon page. You can donate and help keep this thing rolling. If you want to hang out with me, you'll find me in the woods every other weekend. I've been involved in a forest restoration project in the south side of Seattle that's transformed my life, and it's transformed the community. So if you want to get out in the woods, you can check out the calendar of events at chisty.org. That's C-H-E-A-S-T-Y dot org. And if you're wondering who I am behind the mic, my name is Joel DeYoung, and I'm going to be hosting this podcast and seeking out these people to have conversations with and sharing these conversations with you. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's at Joel DeYoung, J-O-E-L-D-E-J-O-N-G. So with that, let's get into Joe Brewer. This conversation was an absolute joy. I mean, Joe's brilliant. He is a culture designer. He's a researcher. 
He's a cognitive linguist, and he's got a unique background in physics, math, philosophy, atmospheric science, complexity research, cognitive linguistics. I mean, this guy is super smart, okay? <laughs> and, and this was a great conversation to kick this podcast off with, not just because um, he's smart, but <laughs> for for one reason, he's got so much to say. He's got a really, really deep understanding about the way that the world works and our patterns of thought and actually the stories that uh, we frame our reality within. So I'll let him talk about more more about that, but he he really unpacks a lot of the systemic issues that we're facing today in our society, and he gives some really good recommendations on a way forward. So Joe is interesting also in that he's using social media to actually um, have some of these conversations and to reach out to his global network um, to create change. So um, Joe's a really empathetic person too. I mean, he's got a great heart. And, and in this conversation, he, he goes into his background and, and tells about his childhood and the things that he's had to overcome to create resilience in, in his own person. And now he's using that on behalf of the common good. So really amazing person, grateful to know him. Um, this guy's on a mission. He has, he has one mission, which is to secure the existence of a complex, thriving global civilization in 100 years. Let me read that again. He's on a mission to secure the existence of a complex, thriving global civilization in 100 years. So if you're looking at the bar for purpose or meaning in your life, um, Joe's setting it pretty high, and, and he's tackling some things at a global scale. And let's just jump into this conversation, and, and let's hear what Joe says. Um, the first part, you'll hear him talking. We're actually in Joe's house in the Central District in Seattle. He's, the volume's a little bit low because he's approaching the table. And what he's, what he's uh, uh, talking about is actually a Facebook post that he had posted earlier in the day um, to basically prov prov provoke people and um, to in engage people in a conversation. So um, we'll get into more of that, but let's jump right in to Joe Brewer. What I posted today, two hours ago, is uh, just saying this for the record, to claim that yeah. Bernie Sanders supporters are responsible for Hillary Clinton losing the 2016 election is delusional. It is like blaming the activists of Occupy Wall Street for the market crash that came a few years earlier. Deep structural corruption was in the political system itself. The causes are systemic, not reductionist. Recognize this important insight and you will be way ahead of those around you who are confused by what happened. This will also help you navigate the insanity of what is still to come. For it is the case that many of these delusional people are still in influential advising roles to the status quo systems of power. Also, for the record, even if Sanders had won the presidency, we would still have a profoundly compromised and broken political system. There are no panaceas here. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm like that's, that's kind of in your face. Like, right. And I'm usually not this aggressive. But and this is a more aggressive than usual post. And I put it up two hours ago. It's got 76 likes, 11 shares, and about 30 comments. So it's... It's just doing this dynamic thing. How many followers do you have? 
on Facebook? Like, uh, almost 3,700. That's a lot. Yeah, for, yeah it's, it's a big For network. Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I'm and, definitely and, in the top like 5% of accounts. Are you allowed to have that many? Is like a, just the... They max you at 5,000. Okay, so you And then the, after that, people become followers. They can't be friends. Oh, interesting. And okay. I also have an additional, um, I think, 1,100. Yeah, yeah. 1,125 who are following me. So I'm closer to 5,000 in total. Okay. But 3,678 friends. You have friends, but you have people following you that aren't your friends? Yeah. Okay. I didn't even know that you could do that. Yeah. So you can see <laughs> it here that I've got 3,678 here. Yeah. And right here it says followed by 1,125. Got it. Okay. So following basically means you get people's news feeds as part of your... Right. It's, it's like an RSS sign up sort okay. of thing. So in total, 5,000, of course, with the filtering... Yeah. Um, it's much less than that at any given moment. Yep. And there's this activation process of content that has been interacted with before it gets elevated. Mm -hmm. It's a higher weighting later. So I've kind of had this cascade in the last few days of all of my pieces having like 100 plus likes and lots of comments because I'm, I'm basically dancing with people's emotions. Right. Like I'm taking people feel this way. I have sensed that people feel this way by provoking them in some way mm -hmm. or seeing them provoked in some way. Okay. And then I'm working with it. Why are you doing that? Are, are we in the... Yeah, we're sure, just, yeah. We're, yeah. Um, basically, why I'm doing it is very straightforward. If you were to go to a natural disaster that just happened and look around you, you'd see a lot of people that are in shock, mm -hmm. that are in trauma, that don't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in a large-scale version of that right now. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it's probably you know, 50 million or more people are in direct like emotional shock mm -hmm. about the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they are not able to process their emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, if we broaden to the entire planet and the things that are happening, you could see similar patterns with different triggers, mm -hmm. whether it's what's happening in Syria right now, what happened a few months ago with the Brexit vote in the UK, mm -hmm. and you could pick different places. You would see these experiences of shock if you knew how to look for them. The reason I'm doing this is because other things that I know about the global system, we're in a time of significant consequences. What people do collectively in the next few years, and I mean, to not overstate it, it's like the difference between the human population collapsing by 2 billion people in the next 30 years mm -hmm. or collapsing to less than a billion people. Hmm. We're talking about very significant consequences. The thing that I'm doing is a dynamic healing process okay. to move people through trauma so that those who have the emotional and social skills to be able to help others in a traumatizing event get to that place more quickly. Got it. And those who are already there, mm -hmm. say like disaster responders, first responders, would be more skilled at this. Mm -hmm. They may not be in shock at all. They may be you know, in whatever survival mode they need to be to handle things, but they're not in denial. They're not delusional. They're not playing the game of blaming people mm -hmm. and making up excuses instead of taking action. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're a medical responder and you show up at the scene of a car accident and someone's bleeding out, the very first thing you do is stop the bleeding. Right. And so a person who's trained will start to act on the moment. Well, right now at a planetary scale, we are in emergency. Mm -hmm. People need to be acting on the moment. Mm -hmm. 
moment after moment after moment. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing because of my background in cognitive science and cultural research, Mm -hmm. I I know how to see a lot of things in these patterns. Mm -hmm. It's not just that I'm able to work with people in trauma, but I'm able to strategically intervene seeing what's emerging. And so that's what I'm doing here. And you're using social media as a way to reach these people. Yeah. Yeah. So like on Facebook, when I see that there is a set of trending topics, Mm -hmm. maybe a bunch of people are trying to give rationales for what happened with the election. Mm -hmm. What this says to me is that a lot of people are confused. They're in this place of anxiety, Mm -hmm. and they're looking for some kind of confidence, Mm -hmm. some kind of sureness, Mm -hmm. something that they can say, well, I don't really know what's going on, but at least I know this. They're kind of grasping at straws. absolute. Give me something. Give me something. And so it's an what psychologists would call an anxiety reduction strategy. Mm -hmm. They're trying to cope with anxiety by reducing it. Well, when looking at that kind of a pattern, Mm -hmm. there'll be detailed things like the specific ways that people cope. Mm -hmm. And if you understand enough of what is actually going on, you can see people's confusion include them misunderstanding things. They have a conceptual story that they tell, and it's not what's happening. So it's like if uh, you got to that car crash as an emergency responder and someone's trying to find their phone. Mm because they need to call their wife because they uh, are worried that they left the stove on. Mm -hmm. Well, the stove is completely irrelevant. The house at home is not where the crisis is. Crisis is there, but this person is displaced. They're not in the moment. They're in this kind of altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Well, because of the ways that human beings create culture collectively, where we can actually create false memories of things. We can misunderstand what's happening and reinforce each other through normalization, through social norms and peer interactions. That a few people living in a delusion, that delusion will feel real and others will live in it too. Mm -hmm. And people who aren't in the delusion are confused because their understanding of reality is different from those around them. Mm -hmm. They have a different kind of anxiety. Their anxiety is, am I going crazy? (laughs) Or what do I do with all these crazy people? And so for those people, in whatever way that they see what's going on, they need two things. They need validation by other people. Okay. And they need community. They need other people to be with them in it. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing in the way that I'm provoking emotions on Facebook Mm -hmm. is... For those who see what's going on, I'm giving them the felt experience of solidarity okay. and validation. Mm-hmm. You are not going crazy. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. All the people that are blaming Bernie Sanders for Hillary Clinton losing the election, those people are delusional. Right. If you think they're delusional, you are not crazy. Mm-hmm. And I see you. Mm-hmm. So you've just been validated. For the other people who are doing different coping mechanisms, they need other things. Mm-hmm. So for those people, it might be acknowledging their emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand you feel this way. You acted in fear, and that's why you did this thing. But the thing you did was not actually helping you. And that's you know, and you can see that with people when they have these recurring patterns mm-hmm. of um, trying to deal with the problem around them and doing it unsuccessfully. And how about the community piece? Where is that? Are are you creating community? Um, is it or is it sort of a virtual support system 
It's a multifaceted thing. Okay. So, and that's one of the ways that it's actually hard to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. If you were to watch my Facebook feed and watch all these interactions, Mm -hmm. you could easily misinterpret what I'm doing because people are showing up in different ways where they are. So, well, let's try and make it very clear. Yeah. Like, let's unpack it. Do you think it'd be um, best to go at the global level and then bring it back down do you see this as a as a symptom of something much larger, and and would it help to bring context to what you're talking about to just talk about the largest scope and then and then bring it back down to yeah. the, the Trump era. So the the big picture. Yeah. There are so there's several ways we could tell this story. So here's one way to tell the story: that in the long history of life on Earth, there have not been complex social organisms capable of creating semantics, meaning capable of living in a dream world and making it real until very recently. Mm -hmm. And that is our species, human beings. Mm -hmm. And according to the anthropology, it's somewhere in the last 100 to 200,000 years did we achieve this ability. And we know this through the historic archaeological record of uh, figurative and representational art. There's only evidence of that artwork going back 100,000 years or so. Mm-hmm. In this big picture. So is, is that the same thing as, as creating language, or did, did language come later? Language came in levels of emergence mm-hmm. over a period of time. The earliest remnants of language could be found in the tool makers mm-hmm. called Homo habilis, people who carved rocks into wedges Okay, about 3 million years ago. And the reason that you could think of that as like an early form of language is that if I look at a rock and see a shape in it mm-hmm. and then carve it to get that shape, that is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Metaphor is to see one thing and then map another thing to it. Mm-hmm. So if I see a wedge inside a rock, that's a metaphor. And so that's an early rudimentary form of language. Okay. You could say similar things with gesturing and vocalizations and stuff like that. So, and is this, so language is, this is part of it. Thinking, thinking something... I'm conscious of something and then manifesting it in the material world? No, it's more of a... Well, let me continue that story briefly before we go into these details. Sure. Because uh, the reason that I'm starting in this bigger picture of Mm -hmm. this strange animal that can live in dream worlds Mm -hmm. that's been around for 100,000 years or a little more, which is our ancestors, the reason that that's so important is if we can live in an imagined world... Mm -hmm where the filters of perception and the filters of conception Mm -hmm. are the same. So let me clarify that. My visual system, like my eyes and the part of my brain that processes visual information, Mm -hmm. that's perception, that's Mm -hmm. visual perception. Well, that visual perception system is part of what my language is built on Mm -hmm. for me to conceive, to have concepts of things, like spatial reasoning, I'm going to reason about things in a spatial way. I'm going to use the perception system of vision to help me do that. So what this does is it creates a layer of meaning Mm -hmm. between direct experience of the world and interpretation of the world. And that allows for the root problem. The root problem is the illusion of separation. And you can look at any religion or wisdom tradition. And, you know, this is not a new idea. Right. It's a very old idea. All of the wisdom traditions of the world Mm -hmm. have some 
articulation of separation as being original sin, mm-hmm. cause of harm and suffering, disharmony. You know, you'll see versions of this. So I'm just saying the same thing again. Right. But because we started another process 10,000 years ago of starting to think of ourselves as separate from nature and controlling nature, and this was the specific cultures where agriculture was invented. Mm-hmm. What that created was forms of social organization, ways that communities built themselves around stories of being separate from nature. Flash forward to the present. And what's happened is we have moved to a place of extreme disconnect between our true connection to nature and the stories that we live out and the way we organize our societies. Mm-hmm. And so that in this way, something like global warming is a symptom of this root cause, which is the illusion of separation. Mm-hmm. We believe we're separate from nature, so we destroy and consume nature. We don't realize that in the process, we're destroying and consuming ourselves. Mm-hmm. So any of the big problems in the world today, you can connect to this, this way of interpreting things. And it wouldn't be complete. It wouldn't cover all of it, but it would be a, a, a component of it. Mm-hmm. So when we look at these problems in that big picture way, what's happening now is the human population has grown in the last 100 years thanks to industrialism, the growth of manufacturing post-World War II, various other bigger trends we could talk about, where we now have 7 and 7.3 to 7.4 billion living people. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to know what the maximum number of humans is that could live in harmony with the planet, mm-hmm. but it's very unlikely to be this large. So um, what that means is that we are in a place of overshoot. We are using up things that nature creates faster than nature can replenish. And so regeneration is not possible in that mode. Mm -hmm. We're taking more than it's possible to give. Mm -hmm. In that context of taking more than can be given, we're using things up that we depend upon. That creates scarcity. Scarcity creates stress, pain, suffering, death, conflict, xenophobia, intertribal competition, war, violence. All these things that we're seeing around us, those are also symptoms of this mythological separation from nature. Mm -hmm. But they're very tangible now. So what's happening on my Facebook feed when I'm looking at the emotions that are coming up for people and mapping those emotions to the stories they're telling themselves Mm -hmm. to make sense of things, I'm working with that space of myth-making between perception and conception, Mm -hmm. that place between directly experiencing reality and making up a story about it. Mm -hmm. And right now, most of the stories that people are making up are pathological because they're based in the illusion of separation and they don't even know it. Mm -hmm. So where where are we going? What's the goal of unity? No, the goal here is um, unity is, is ephemeral. We achieve it in moments. If you think in, in the Buddhist tradition, you don't get to enlightenment and then you're there. Mm-hmm. You have but moments of being aiming. in it. So what we're aiming toward is a kind of planetary scale resilience. Resilience in its simplest terms just means that when a system is disrupted, it's able to maintain whatever are its essential functions. Mm-hmm. So take your body. Mm-hmm. If we pick, uh, say, your heart pumping to send blood around your body, mm-hmm. then anything that disrupts your heart and stops it from doing that 
would be the opposite of resilience. But anything your body can do to keep your blood flowing, keep your heart pumping, is part of the capacity of resilience. Mm -hmm. So if you go from a sitting position to a standing position, Mm -hmm. your heart rate changes, but you don't lose blood flow, Mm -hmm. and so your body is being resilient. What's happening now at a planetary scale is we are actively destroying the things that the planet naturally does to maintain resilience at the planetary scale. And as we do that, what's happening is we're moving ourselves into a place that you, know, you can hear hear it in the stories about the mass extinction event that's happening and the, mm-hmm. the loss of species caused directly by human activities. Um, you can hear it in the story of mass starvation in sub-Saharan Africa that's been happening for the last 50 years. And other places we could, we could pick as well, but in each case, what's happening is ecosystems are operating in a way that is unraveling. It's moving them further from their capacity to be resilient. Mm-hmm. And so um, the part that humans can control is we can choose our stories. But we can only choose our stories within the bounds of what our bodies can experience. Mm-hmm. And so that includes processing our emotions. So making sense of things when our emotions are going haywire is exactly the time when these interventions are most needed. Mm-hmm. So that's um, it's part of what's <laughs> going on in mm-hmm. the world right now. It's interesting that you use the word resilience. Um, I mean, I find that, that word being used in... Um, Ecology, you know, forest restoration. I find it being used in business. You know, we need to have resilient businesses now because um, change is the new norm. So, how do we become resilient? Um, but that word for me, it, it gets me to a place of like a, a ceiling. Like, resilient is really just um, staying alive. You know, how do we get to a place of thriving? Well, the thriving piece is something that we start to recognize when we place a resilient system mm-hmm. within an evolutionary framework. Mm-hmm. The reason that it needs to be in an evolutionary framework is that there has to be a recognition that resilience is defined as the relationship between whatever system we're talking about and its larger context. Okay. And so if we have a static model of resilience, then we assume the context stays the same. But something is evolutionary if there has to be adaptation Mm -hmm. to a changing context. And when we think of resilience in changing context, that's a way of defining thriving. Yeah, that's helpful. You can have momentary thriving, like I'm thriving right now, but tomorrow, who knows? <laughs> and what that actually means is we use thriving in a way that is not resilient. Got it. See how we can mm-hmm. can use these words and focus on pieces of what they mean mm-hmm. and miss out on the other pieces. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes us depend upon an evolutionary framework mm-hmm. is that the evolutionary framework requires us to look at relative fitness adapting to an environment. Okay, that sounds like an equation. Yeah, so relative fitness Mm -hmm. just means that there are different ways of being or doing things Mm -hmm. at any moment. Some of them are better suited to the situation than others. Mm -hmm. So it's relative fitness. Mm -hmm. The uh, adaptation piece is that as the environment changes, 
the criteria for what it means to be fit will also change. And then there will be this process of selection. Mm -hmm. But selection isn't something that happens forward in time. Mm -hmm. It's something you can see looking backward in time. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we chose what's going to be fit next. It's that what happens next will in many ways shape what was possible, what would be possible Mm -hmm. in that next step Mm -hmm. to be able to thrive or flourish. So flourish is this moving target. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the reason that resilience gets rightfully criticized is that it's usually thought of within a static background context. And we are definitely not in a static (laughs) background context. No, we're not. But placing resilience within an evolutionary adaptive Mm -hmm. framework then it's still like a, a very useful and a fairly well-rounded concept. Mm-hmm. Who, who is thinking like this that's actually you know, making progress within this framework? I think mostly um, people that are doing permaculture design projects mm-hmm. where they're combining community health with ecological restoration. Mm-hmm. It's some of the most tangible versions of it. Mm-hmm. I think also... At a smaller scale, um, therapy work that's helping someone through trauma. Hmm. There's a lot of good examples of this. There's this um, phenomenon in the field of positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, which is a a contrast with post-traumatic stress. Okay. So post-traumatic stress is what happens to a person when they've had some emotionally intense experience that causes them harm mm-hmm. and then it, the uh their their body or their social environment causes them to re-experience the trauma mm-hmm. so it keeps them debilitated so that's post-traumatic stress syndrome mm-hmm. post-traumatic growth is when someone goes through a debilitating emotionally intense experience and then finds a source of agency and empowerment to change their story over time about what happened to them mm-hmm. until they grow stronger, they grow more healthy, they grow more adaptive mm-hmm. to the new environments that they're in. Mm-hmm. And that's called post-traumatic growth. So this is a really important difference because when we look at a person who's experiencing post-traumatic growth, they didn't avoid suffering and pain. Mm-hmm. They weren't protected or shielded from it. There's no paternalism. Mm -hmm. But what they did do was they found in the middle of the crucible of pain, they found something that they could do to better themselves. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, usually with help from the outside, Mm -hmm. whether it's with friends, spouse, a therapist, wherever they found it, they start to make sense of what happened to them. Mm -hmm. So let me give a um, a more vivid example. Okay. Imagine that you are a 13-year-old girl who gets raped by a person who's an adult that you admire and trust. A whole bunch of things would happen in this situation. One thing that would happen would be a lot of self-doubt. You know, can I really trust people? I thought I could trust this person. A lot of potential for shame and humiliation and self-judgment. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, um, body territory that becomes a trigger for trauma, meaning that if they get touched or interacted with in a way that's that's in any way similar, 
to what happened in the traumatic event, they can re-experience it. Mm-hmm. This is a, a prime setting for PTSD. Mm-hmm. So imagine if a person in this situation over the next few years at first cannot explain what happened to them. I don't understand it. You know, did I do something wrong? Am I to blame? Are people just bad? Can I trust men? Mm-hmm. Whatever they don't know, they're confused. But they come to a place where somewhere outside of themselves, Mm -hmm. they find that their experience is useful to someone in a way that makes them feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe this person, years later, maybe in their mid-20s, becomes um, a volunteer at a center for domestic abuse victims. Or maybe they become a spokesperson for rape victims. Or maybe they do something that's not connected to rape specifically, but the experience they had becomes something that they now have a skill Mm -hmm. or insight and wisdom and knowledge that they can use to help someone else. Mm -hmm. Now, they can change their story over time to say, I went through this terrible experience, so I'm not going to let this happen to someone else. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use it to help them they just did in that story is they found a way to be the empowered protagonist of their story mm-hmm. and their story is one of using what happened to them mm-hmm. to make something they care about better and that is the signature of post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. when I map this to what's going on in the world today the blameworthiness of people around an event like who did you vote for in this election you're to blame That is a static model of thinking that does not evolve the story of the person. So it's got all of the signature characteristics of PTSD Mm -hmm. instead of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. Post-traumatic growth would be things like, at first I blamed the Bernie supporters. At first I blamed the racist Trump supporters. At first I blamed insert enemy here. And then? And then I found that those stories did not work. Mm -hmm. I found contradicting evidence. Mm -hmm. I was confused or unsure of myself. I kept looking. I stayed in this mode of inquiry. I couldn't make sense of it. I kept struggling to make sense of it Mm -hmm. until I found a place that my experience of judging other people and finding that was inadequate opened me up to have a kind of compassion and listening skill for seeing people in ways that don't just judge them. Mm -hmm. And now I can use that skill to help people Mm -hmm. while I just turned a potentially traumatic experience into a growth experience. So this is like very tangible stuff that we can be doing at any time Mm -hmm. as these emotions are coming up. And it's very difficult. Very difficult. It's, but it's what's required. Yeah. Of all of us. It's um, one way that I think about this, because I've studied martial arts and dance, Mm -hmm. these physical training Mm -hmm. practices, is that uh, I became strategic and intelligent Mm -hmm. in my habits by practicing and rehearsing things Mm -hmm. that I would do by habit that would have strategy and intelligence in them. It wasn't that I was strategic or intelligent. It was that I practiced and rehearsed being strategic and being intelligent. And then it became a body impulse. It became something my body, in my finger quotes, automatically does. Mm -hmm. But actually, it doesn't automatically do it. It was trained into it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a little insight about emotions 
that tells us why we need to think in terms of body-based practice. Mm -hmm. And that is the scientific explanation of emotions. Emotions in their most basic form are are, uh, biochemical processes within the body. Okay. So when you have anger, one thing that's happening in your body is your body is releasing endorphins like adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Well, these are chemicals. So for you to experience the emotion, chemicals have to be created by your body. They have to move around your body and they change the functioning of your body. When we realize that emotions are physical, they're part of the chemistry of our bodies. Mm-hmm. We have to develop body-based practices to have strategic and intelligent rehearsed responses mm-hmm. for our own emotions. Well, that's just like martial arts or dance. Mm-hmm that I become good at doing the movement Mm -hmm. by practicing the movement. Mm -hmm. Well, here the movement is a biochemical movement. It's a movement experienced as a behavioral pattern Mm -hmm. of emotions and how we respond to our emotions. So we practice working with our emotions to become skilled at it. How do we do that? One place we start, and parents and teachers of small children (laughs) have experience with this, (laughs) Maybe. <laughs> well, they may have experience with not being very good at it, but they have experience of children having these emotions that come on really quickly oh. and they change really quickly. Like when you have a two-year-old, they're like, I'm really happy. 10 seconds later, I'm crying like crazy. 10 seconds later, I'm angry. Like their ability to change emotions is just like floodgate emotion A, floodgate emotion B. Mm-hmm. What they don't have is two abilities. Mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to distance themselves from the emotion. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the ability to make sense of the emotion. Okay. And then gradually, they they develop this. And the name for this in psychology is emotion regulation. Okay. And there's all this research that children that learn emotion regulation have all the signatures of success later in life. Healthy relationships, Mm -hmm. less divorces, um better uh, educational attainment, they go farther in school, perform better in school, Mm -hmm. less likely to become drug addicts, less likely to commit suicide. All these measures of life success are connected with emotion regulation. Yeah, you hear these stories about like high performing Mm -hmm. athletes. And then when you get down to the core of like, hey, well, what what do you think separates you from everybody else? And they say, well, I, I have control of my emotions. Yeah, and it's actually that they don't have control of their emotions. That's a, a, <laughs> so it's actually a misnomer. Because okay. what they actually have is they have the ability to stay in uncomfortable emotions. Okay. And so this is similar to creativity. It's being present in the tension. It's and, being and, present and in the tension. And it's not the same as building a muscle where mm-hmm. you know you build your muscle by having the muscle fibers in tension. Yeah. Emotions don't physically work that way. Mm-hmm. But the metaphor is useful in a limited sense that the more we work with our emotions, the more skilled we become at working with our emotions. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between me avoiding ever being sad mm-hmm. and me being skilled at being sad. Mm-hmm. So I might not be able to avoid getting sad. Mm-hmm. But I might be able to do really useful things when I'm sad. Right. Well, that difference is about emotional skill. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I, I tell my kids all the time, too, because, I mean, you're describing them and things that already happened today. <laughs> they just go off and you're like, okay, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to behave like that when you're angry. You know, so trying to say it's okay to feel that way. You know, we're all going to get frustrated with each other and angry with each other. But, you know, when 
you actually yell and disrespect me and your mom. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Separating what that does is it it's a a framing thing. A framing thing meaning that you created a mental concept. Mm-hmm. The mental concept included a barrier of sep- of separation. Mm-hmm. The barrier of separation is that the feeling of the emotion is different from the behavior. Mm-hmm. And you just said it that way. It's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to speak disrespectfully to mom. Mm-hmm. Well, see, what you just did is you named feeling is different from behavior. Mm-hmm. That mental construct creates a space mm-hmm. for introspection about the feeling. So you can say, how are you feeling right now? I'm angry. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to be angry? I'm tense. I need to move. I can't sit still. You know, you can describe these physical components of what mm-hmm. it feels like to be angry. There's a difference between being angry and saying, I'm angry and I want to hurt someone. Okay, those are two different things. <laughs> so let's separate them. Why do you want to hurt someone? Well, maybe you actually want to hurt someone because you're angry. Mm-hmm. Why are you angry? Because you feel hurt. Mm-hmm. What happens when you're in pain? Mm-hmm. When you're in pain, you try to get away from the thing that caused you pain. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, if you interpret the source of pain as a threat, you try to destroy and get rid of the threat. Mm-hmm. Like If there's a snake that's about to bite me, I might try to hit it with a stick mm-hmm. to keep it from biting me. So my anger response is actually a pain mitigation response. Mm -hmm. I feel pain or I feel the threat of pain and I respond. I have a strategy to deal with the pain that includes my body getting angry. Mm -hmm. Because as I get angry, maybe I'm able to hit harder and kill the snake. Mm -hmm. And if I learn that hitting harder to kill the snake is the way to deal deal with things that cause me pain, Mm That might be a bad strategy in another setting. Mm-hmm. So I might, years later, feel pain about the loss of my father mm-hmm. and in my pain get angry with my wife and abuse my wife. Mm. Because what I learned was when I'm in pain, I hit things. Mm. And then my strategy that worked for the snake became the wrong strategy for how to treat my wife. Right. So you see how these things, they become part of our physical bodies. Mm-hmm. They become choreographed scripts. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is act out those scripts to see them, create mental separation between feeling them, behaving them, and understanding them, and then gradually work to actively change them. Mm -hmm. And this takes work. So so that's what is needed in the world today. So like if someone said, how do we deal with global warming? And someone else says, we get all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right. That completely ignores that all of this change of people's physical bodies Mm -hmm. needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So a whole bunch of reasons why people are not able to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And all of that has been missed by this technocratic analysis. Mm -hmm. So uh, same thing can be said for political corruption or... You know, lies being spread in the media and confused as truth or whatever Mm -hmm. other problem we want to describe, that this physical cultural component is always there Mm -hmm. and it's usually hidden from view, Mm -hmm. but it's where the work is. And this is what you're working on. And this is what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say like the work I'm doing is the only work to be doing. I'm not saying it to be that way. Like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if I have a hammer, all problems look like nails. Right. But what I am saying is that the problems we have now come from this, this illusion of separation that I yeah. mentioned a while ago, and that we live these stories that don't help us. And as the world is changing now in a dramatic way, 
and very harmful things are happening because of it, now more than ever, we have to have a capacity for discernment. And discernment is harder when people have strong emotions. Mm -hmm. And the very problems that are causing threat are creating situations that create strong emotions. Mm -hmm. So we're creating something that's the opposite of what's needed. Mm -hmm. So we have to actively work against that. Right. You need a force to, you need the opposite force to pull it back. It's like the pendulum's already swung out and you need to develop some sort of way to bring it back. And also we need to humanize it. Mm -hmm. We need to recognize that right in the middle of this Mm -hmm. is something that's fundamental to the human condition. And that is that human beings have the kinds of bodies that are able to make up these myths and live them out. And because we have that kind of body, we do this. Mm-hmm. And therein we have the power of gods. Mm-hmm. We create imagined worlds and live in them as if they're real. Mm-hmm. But if we live in an imagined world that's pathological, it hurts us. It's not just bad in, a, in an ideological way, like you don't have my beliefs. It's bad in an adaptive strategy sort of way. I need something. I adapt by changing my behavior with some strategy that I have, and my adaptive strategy does not address my problem. Mm-hmm. So my attempt to solve the problem didn't work. Mm-hmm. So, the, so it's bad in the sense that our needs don't get met things we care about get hurt or destroyed because we don't know how to deal with them. And it's because the stories we live out are not the stories we need to live out, Mm -hmm. and we can't tell the difference. So we need clarity on what story we need to tell ourselves and what story we need to live out. Yes, and we need it moment to moment Mm -hmm. as a lived experience. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, oh, there's a story. Here's the story. Everybody get this story. Everybody get this story. Start reading it. Yeah. No, it's much more, what are your adaptive strategies? Mm-hmm. What is your environment? Mm-hmm. Now, if I was in Syria right now, my environment would be very different than if I was at Standing Rock. So there would be elements of the story that are the same. Deal with the illusion of separation. Connect with your needs and where they're not being met. What are the sources of scarcity and what are their root causes? Mm-hmm. But at a specific level, the story that would actually be adaptive would be context specific. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's why it has to be lived out moment to moment. everyone has their own unique story is what you're saying. Well, everyone has their own unique place Mm -hmm. in the meshwork of emerging stories. Okay. Because there's there's overlap. Mm -hmm. It's not that I have my own story, but I do have my own story. Mm -hmm. It's that I am part of a meshwork of stories Mm -hmm. And the thing that I have the most power to influence is my interpretation and my awareness of my own storytelling. What stories do I tell myself? How do I live them out? Do they help? What do I actually care about? To kind of shift the gears just for a moment, um, a question that always comes up when people discover my writings and they reach out to me is they ask for advice. You know, Mm. I get a lot of young people that are, starting grad school and they say, I want to study things you do. How should I, Mm -hmm. how should I do that? What field should I go into? I get this kind of, you know, give me life advice. And I always throw the question back at them. I ask them, what's really important to you? What do you care about? What do you aspire to be? Mm -hmm. Who are your role models? 
Who do you want to be like? What do you want to achieve in your life? What's sacred to you? Mm-hmm. The reason that I do that is because when we go back to Socrates, mm-hmm. that the unexamined life isn't worth living, uh, that the way that we figure out if our story is working is if it works for what we're working for. Mm-hmm. And there's a name for this. It's called being intentional. Mm-hmm. If you're being intentional, you have already figured out what you want and what you care about, what you need, and then you're actively trying to get it. I intend to be a good father. Mm-hmm. Okay, am I being a good father? How do I measure? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a good father? So the way that we figure out if, um, if the story we tell ourselves is working mm-hmm. is by very simple check-ins. Mm-hmm. Am I like the role models that I aspire to be? Right. In what ways am I like that? And would those aspirational role models be appropriate to the problems I'm dealing with? Mm-hmm. So if I want to be like Einstein with some story of you know, science of discovery circa 1935, or what he did when he was coming up with the general theory of relativity around 1910, he didn't have to deal with planetary scale ecocide. So we're in a time now where we have to also be empirical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this big debate about people being fact-based and and there's a lot of confusion because humans don't operate by figuring out what's real and then acting on it. Mm -hmm. And there are very important reasons why we don't work that way. But there is something very important about the scientific method which does two things really well when we actually use it. One of them is that we test our stories about the world against data in the world. Mm -hmm. It's what hypothesis uh, formation and experimentation is about. The other thing is we check each other's work with peers who have relevant competency. So if I'm an engineer and I just created a diagram for a bridge, I don't go to a media analyst and ask them if my diagram's going to work. Mm -hmm. They don't have relevant competency. They can't find my mistakes. But another engineer can. And so the other thing that science does is goes through this process of peer review. We have other people with relevant expertise critique our work. Mm -hmm. These two things together allow us to have reasonable approximations of what the world is Mm -hmm. and a way of improving our understanding of it. And that's what the scientific method does best. When we kind of generalize that to life, that's just called learning. (laughs) <laughs> right, that's just being good at learning. Right. So if I'm trying to uh, you know, be a good husband mm-hmm. or be a good father, mm-hmm. then I can check myself against my peers. Mm-hmm. I can go to friends who are husbands and fathers, and I can ask them, you know, I'm trying this, and this is what's happening. Do you think it's working? Is there anything you're seeing that I'm not seeing? Mm-hmm. So this thing of science being these elite experts who are out of touch and whatever is a misunderstanding of this really basic process. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm bringing it up is that we're living in a world that is more complex than any social environment human beings have lived in before. Mm -hmm. So figuring out what's really going on is harder than it was in the past. And it's always been hard, but now it's hard times 12. And at the same time, we have these huge systemic threats. So if we're acting on something that's not connected to reality, then we're like... um, 
or like the people on Easter Island who cut down the last of the trees to move their their big statues <laughs> and they drove themselves to extinction. Right. That uh, our disconnect from what is real keeps us from doing things that actually address what we need. Mm-hmm. So this empirical validation piece is not just, oh, Western science is the way to go. It's that connecting what we're doing to the actual world is, is very important. Mm-hmm. And right now it's it's extra important because the consequences of getting it wrong are bigger than they've ever been before. Mm. So so this, um, this process of evaluating our stories mm-hmm. has multiple scales to it. We have to ask ourselves, at this point in history, what should I be doing? Mm-hmm. How should I live now? And we need to be asking it at the levels of interpersonal relationships community relationships, relationships with our peers, however we define them, but also with the entire planet and with the entire human race. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is the opposite. We're seeing tribalism. We're seeing my tribe is going to protect itself against everyone else's tribe, and we're splintering and fracturing the world. Well, we've always been tribalistic, mm-hmm. but the tendency to be tribalistic now is moving us away from the ability to deal with these problems. Mm-hmm. So... It's uh, an urgent crisis mm-hmm. to be falling back to our tribes now. We have to actively resist it. And this goes back to our conversation a few minutes ago about the athlete right. and their emotions. We have to stay in the discomfort. Mm-hmm. If our tendency is to fall back on our tribe, then practice effortfully mm-hmm. not being in our tribe. Mm-hmm. And we live in a culture that really likes to be comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> How, how can I make this pain go away, right? Yeah, yeah. How, how can I, I take another Advil? This, is, this doesn't feel very good. Yeah, in, in a world like this, we can see who the people are that are going to be better at handling the changes. Mm-hmm. And in this paradoxical way, the people who have the least comfort have more preparation because mm-hmm. they've already been on the edge of death for mm-hmm. in different ways. So they can be agile Mm -hmm. there, and they're already kind of roughened and toughened Mm -hmm. to survive in that place. Mm -hmm. But also, they're often traumatized and debilitated by it. So it doesn't mean that the impoverished people of the world are the best helpers. The impoverished people of the world didn't get to go and study planetary climate science Mm -hmm. or other things that are needed. Mm -hmm. But in our country in particular, in the United States, especially among the wealthier, more educated people, our emotional training is seriously deficient. Mm -hmm. And luckily, in an ironic way, most of us have still experienced some kind of trauma. And I say luckily because as luck would have it, that's what we're going to need to depend upon to cultivate the skill. Mm -hmm. So it's not lucky because it's a good thing. It's just that in this moment, we're going to need it, and so it's helpful that it's there. Mm But and, yeah, it's a real it, problem. And it will happen. Like it, The human experience is such that you will feel it one way or the other. It's just, um, you know, whether or not you're avoiding it or you're open to experiencing it. Yeah, and even at times when avoiding it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is that if you are emotionally overwhelmed, the damage that it would do is so severe that it has to be avoided. Mm-hmm. Then being in denial for a little while is a perfectly acceptable place to be. Mm-hmm. But if we stay there, if we stay in denial, then 
we're going to neglect all of our responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And so there's this interesting uh, temporal component. It's not that we have to be perfect all the time, mm-hmm. or even that we need to be at our best, even if it's not perfect all the time. It's that <clears throat> we have to recognize that there is a time in which to deal with ourselves and a time in which to let ourselves not be dealt with. So if I have needs, sometimes I need to focus on those things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I need to be hurt not having my needs met because something else is more important. Mm -hmm. Figuring out that difference is really hard. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of practice that we need to be in now. Mm -hmm. And all of the global indicators of destabilization and damage to the planetary Mm -hmm. system they tell us that uh, this isn't a place to just be in because of the Trump presidency for the next four years. Right. This is for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. This is for the next 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. That, um, not that that will be in our entire lives or the lives of young people necessarily, but that uh, this is something that we don't just stay in the discomfort for a moment and then, oh, it's over, I'm done. Right. It's that... The new normal is that there is no normal. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we've already been in it for about 15 years. I mean, think of the the war on terror, that metaphor and all the great lies and all the harms that it caused for more than a decade. You know, we've been in this condition for a while now. Mm -hmm. What's different is the pace, is that we used to be able to tolerate our own confusion because the confusion would have a stability to it. I was confused because of something, and I just stayed there for three years. Well, now I'm confused because of something for three days. And then the next something that confuses me comes along. Mm -hmm. I've been tracking this by watching the trendiness of catastrophe. Mm. And I remember one one of the measures that I took was uh, earlier this year, if you remember, there was a guy who went into a, a, a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and killed about 50 people. Mm-hmm. It was one of those terrible mass shooting events. I tracked on social media how long it trended. Five days. Mm. For five days, it was the worst problem in the world for about 50 million people. And then it was replaced. Do you know what it was replaced by? No. Brexit the vote of the United Kingdom to leave the Eurozone, the Brexit vote. So the Orlando shooting happened on a Monday. Mm-hmm. The Brexit vote happened Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Well, Thursday night for people in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so five days after the Orlando shooting, this other traumatizing event, so big we don't know how to make sense of it, happened and it wasn't that it was the same people Mm -hmm. shifting from one thing to another Mm -hmm. it was that the media was caught up in its big bubble of everyone feeling the trauma and not knowing what to do and trying to make sense Mm -hmm. for again about a week Mm -hmm. so i've watched throughout the year that the time stamp of these trauma events is between three and seven days now these things that are so big we don't know how to deal with them Mm -hmm. We wrestle with them for a few days, and then we're spent, and we're just numb. And while we're numb, 
another traumatizing event happens, causing another cohort of people with partial overlap of the previous cohort to re-experience the same thing over and over and over on timescales of a couple of days. So when that's happening, how can we possibly do something like a 30-year transition of the infrastructure of the global economy <laughs> to avoid the collapse of the planet's ecosystem. Right? That's what's needed, mm-hmm. and this is what's happening. So emotional processing is the bandwidth limiter. Mm-hmm. It's just simply that we cannot process these emotions in the ways that they're happening to be able to deal with our shit. Mm -hmm. And so as we're in this frantic survival mode all the time, Mm -hmm. we're engaging in maladaptive strategies. We're doing things that are not helping. Mm -hmm. And all the while, we need to be holding intentions for something that's on a time scale that is very, let's say, unnatural for human beings. Mm -hmm. People don't normally deal with something on multi-decade timescales. So we have to be able to hold those larger timescales while managing our emotions in the moment. And that's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So let's go back. Let's go back. Because I want to understand like how you got here too. Like how how you got to what you're doing. And you mentioned something like um, your connection, like a connection to a moment or a connection to nature. Can you remember when you had a very real moment when you were young? Yeah, I have a specific memory. Uh, I was in preschool. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember being three years old, but it's possible I was four because mm-hmm. I went to preschool for two years. Mm-hmm. But I was a little kid. I was on the playground with the other little kids. And I was looking at all these kids wondering why they were all so mean to each other. Wow. And really hurt by watching all these kids just mindlessly, totally unaware, doing hurtful things to each other, which kids do. So that's a normal thing. And the, the thing that I felt was the loneliness of being separate from the other kids. Mm. Why do I see it and they don't? Because I felt the pain that the kids were causing in two ways. I felt the pain caused by the the pain experienced by the kids that were being bullied, Mm -hmm. having their toys taken away, whatever was happening. But I also felt the numbness, the insensitivity of the kids that were doing it. Mm. I wondered how could that kid do this thing to that other kid and not feel it? Mm -hmm. And I experienced them both. I didn't have like language for it. It's not like I could describe it the way I am now, Mm -hmm. but I had a very clear felt experience that I was, I was feeling something and I didn't understand why these other kids weren't. Mm -hmm. That's pretty special for a, what do you say? Preschooler? Yeah. Yeah. So I was three or four years old. Yeah. Where were you? So this was in Southwest Missouri. Okay. And, um, what's it like there? Is it pretty rural? It's, it's rural farm country. Uh-huh. Um, I, I kind of jokingly say it's the hinterland between rednecks and hillbillies because uh, the Ozark Mountains are kind of the westernmost edge of Appalachian culture. Okay. If you're in northern Arkansas, you have mm-hmm. some of those mountain hillbilly kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And then the farm country is more redneck or more agricultural. Mm-hmm. 
And the place I grew up is right at the boundary between the two. Okay. And um, there's a long history of uh, um, you know, the Scots-Irish Scots migration patterns of people that populated Appalachia earlier on and their history of, um, of clan-based violent culture and the kind of honor code of that part of the South that is also expressed across Appalachia, and you can see it in the southern Midwest. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was some of that. There was a lot of racism, as fundamentalist Christianity, mm -hmm. um, which is the, you know the fire and brimstone Baptist kind of stuff. Is that what you grew up in? I grew up in a family that was raised Catholic in St. Louis, but they had moved to the country okay. and were no longer practicing. Okay. So I grew up in a place that religion was not part of our home environment, mm -hmm. but it was a big part of the culture around us. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also a lot of uh, um, rampant sexism and violence against women. And um, like so as a teenager, I had a lot of female friends that uh, um, went through date rape and, you know, abuse from from boys. And a lot of boys got trained in the kind of player predator mindset of, you know, how do I seduce and take advantage of girls? You know, so these were just social norms in that environment. So as a kid, even when I was really small, there was just a lot of, you know, what I would say now is emotional and ethical underdevelopment. Mm -hmm. That people were in a kind of um, judgmental, insecure, pain-based, violent, masculinized or patriarchal kind of a culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's not that all cultures of three-year-old and four-year-old children are violent and kids just do these terrible things to each other. I mean, as you know, as a parent, kids do things and they don't know any better because they're just little kids. But here it was normative and the kids were learning from the adults behaviors that were harmful. An example of this that was also a poignant moment in my life, although it wasn't a memory of mine, it was a memory of my mother's, was the, the moment when my mother decided she had to divorce my father which was that my oldest brother, who at the time was seven or eight years old, walked into the kitchen, said to my mother, fuck you, bitch, where's my dinner? Because mm -hmm. that was something my father would say to my mother. Wow. And so my brother was learning from my father how to be a man. Mm -hmm. And when my mother saw that her children were going to be um, violent abusers of her the way that my father was, mm. she was like, I can't take this. I can't handle several boys, several males in this house doing this to me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, I'm not going to inflict my children with this. Mm -hmm. It was, I can't handle more than one abusive man in my world. Mm -hmm. And when she saw this child behaving like an abusive man, because that's what he was learning, mm -hmm. she was like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And she started a process that led to divorce. So when I say that the kids were learning these these harmful, unhealthy behaviors from the adults, that's a, a good example of what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then what happened to your family after that? Well, there was... Well, how old were you? At that time, I was five, oh, six so years old. Young, I was pretty young. Okay. So yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that story. That was just a, mm -hmm. a, a kind of defining story in my mom's life that she would tell later. And then did you have your mom living in a different location than your dad, or were you in the same town together? No, my dad moved out, and then my mom... Uh, raised four kids as a single mother and ran a big industrial chicken farm. Wow. So, um, so there's a whole context around that. But um, you know, drawing it back to your question of 
how in my past did I come to a place where I can do this kind of work? Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that was really essential was um, the vicarious experiencing of trauma, Mm -hmm. where I felt these kids being bad to other kids Mm -hmm. and having an analytic ability. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm on the higher performing end of, uh, of analysis, of really good analytic skills. You know, my math and physics performance was pretty high. Mm-hmm. That um, that I could see patterns and make sense of them. But I also was very empathetic. And so I felt things, and then I tried to make sense of them, and I found ways of creating patterns from mm-hmm. them. So you know, years later, when I was in college, studying things like the philosophy of science, and physics, and mathematics, mm-hmm. um, later cognitive and behavioral science, uh, I was learning the you know the educational advanced practices of these things that I had innate abilities for mm-hmm. but um, they were innate not in the sense that I was gifted with them mm-hmm. but more that I had a combination of aptitudes and um, social environments mm-hmm. that for me to survive in those environments I had to build skill mm-hmm. so I had to become skilled at protecting myself against the harm that I saw inflicted on other people because otherwise, it would have driven me to suicide, which was uh, a risk for me for about 10 years. Mm. That uh, I had to learn how to deal with my own pain mm-hmm. of separation and of seeing people as you know, being bad to each other and feeling like people were bad. Mm-hmm. Not that I felt like everyone was, but that it was a common occurrence there. So that ability to be in that place and cope with it mm-hmm is one reason why I can be in this place now of sitting in these uncomfortable emotions mm-hmm. and hold them is that I have physical training by just surviving through childhood. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's definitely that component of it. So um, who who was your community? Like you said, 10 years where you were suicidal or? Uh, well, so I wasn't actively suicidal, but I, uh, I, I just would say um, that I thought about it a lot and I was in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And at that time, if I think back on it, mostly my community was a small number of friends Mm -hmm. that I could play make-believe with. We just did a lot of imagination games as kids. And a couple of adults that were um, just good emotional supports. What age are we talking here? This is kind of, uh, say, maybe like between the age of 7 and 16 or 17. Okay. So pretty broad set of developmental changes that Mm -hmm. happened through that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like I dealt with the same issues in the same ways through that whole time, but that there were various different incarnations Mm -hmm. of this chronic instability that I felt Mm -hmm. in my life. And um, when I look at the world now and I see how this chronic instability is, in a way it's universalizing, that a lot of people have been able to live in the comfort of not experiencing this. Right. And one of the things that's causing shock, especially in the United States, is the comfort of not living this way for so many people here means they are ill-equipped to handle this. Mm-hmm. So when my friends that are really concerned about what's happening in the world, they say, how can I get you know, young white men who voted for Donald Trump to become activists and dealing with this change? I'm like, you're talking about some of the hardest people to change, mm-hmm. some of the people least prepared. Mm-hmm. What I'm finding in my global work partnering with people around the world on these things is that the most beautiful and inspiring things are the social struggles in other parts of the world so if you go to mexico 
where student uprisings for several years now have been fighting back against very powerful political corruption. Mm -hmm. If you go to South Africa, to Cape Town, where there's this fees must fall movement, where the students are doing two things at, at once, they're fighting against the high uh, college tuition rates, mm -hmm. which they were promised would not be there, and so this social contract has been violated, combined with a colonial um, uh, curriculum that basically they're only learning about Western white culture mm -hmm. and they're not learning anything about South African culture. So these students are organizing about decolonizing the curriculum and addressing the fee structure so they can afford to get education. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're trying to dismantle the educational dimensions of apartheid. Mm -hmm. So in places like this around the world, and I could name other examples, these people are the best prepared to actively deconstruct the pathological stories and actively co-create through shared struggle mm -hmm. the alternative stories. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to look around the world to see where people are doing this, look at Fees Must Fall in Cape Town. Look at Standing Rock in North Dakota. Look at um, the, the student uprisings in Mexico. Look at the peasant land rights movement in India. You know, when you go to these, or look at the sex workers in Thailand or Vietnam, mm -hmm. or the sweatshop workers in Malaysia, the people who are fighting against smog and air pollution in China. When you go to these places, you will find people whose lives have been struggle and who are in, embedded within stronger community than we have in the United States. And we're not going to go to teach them things. They're going to teach us things. Mm -hmm. And we have things we can do to help them that they don't have on their own, mm -hmm. but they have things we definitely don't have. Um, and we can develop them here, but we need to recognize we don't have them. And a great way to do that is to see their existence elsewhere. Mm -hmm. If we see what these South African college students have, how do they get the solidarity that they have? How do they get the trust that they have? How do they develop the ability to put their bodies on the line against a militarized police force? Same thing that's happening at Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. Well, Standing Rock is not led by Westerners, Western Europeans. It's led by First Nations people mm -hmm. who are at the near completion of cultural genocide. Mm -hmm. They've almost been destroyed, but they've survived for hundreds of years within an apartheid regime. And they're rising up is where the most powerful change is happening. So when we look around the world and we recognize that that is the signal, mm -hmm. that is the pattern that is a sign of real meaningful change, mm -hmm. then we can look, how are those stories changing? Mm -hmm. How do those people process their emotions? And what can we learn from them? Mm -hmm. And then we'll see that our struggle is tied to their struggle, mm -hmm. that we are in a kind of apartheid, but our apartheid is mental we live within stories that have enslaved us. Stories like you have to have a job and make money to earn a living to be able to support your family. Well, there's a name for that. That's called economic slavery. Mm. You know, that is being forced to work for money to survive. We used to call that slavery or being an, ind an indentured servant. Now we just call that a wage laborer. So this phenomenon of gradually easing in to, to normalizing behaviors that are structurally violent. It is violent to need money to survive. 
Violence is the effect of not having money. Violence is the coercion of choosing to be at your job instead of with your children as a parent. That is violence. But we don't see it because it's been normalized for us. So as we are in the shock of this, these social worlds breaking down around us, we in the West are the least equipped to deal with it. And that's one thing the Trump supporters actually have over the Hillary supporters, and even to some extent the Bernie, Bernie supporters, is the Trump supporters in many ways are people whose lives are so broken, the government does so little for them, at least as far as they can see, mm-hmm. that they're just like, fuck it. Mm-hmm. You know, if Rome is going to burn, let me grab my torch. Mm-hmm. I'll help it burn. And even if they're not a racist misogynist, they're like, well, maybe a racist misogynist will do it. Someone's got to break this. And so you can understand where they're coming from. But their story is a maladaptive story. Their story is going to make things worse for them and everyone else. So so there's the strength of not being in the mythology of comfort. And then there's the fragility of believing the propaganda that has been fed to them to teach them to hate an enemy that doesn't exist. The urban out-of-touch elites. It turns out urban out-of-touch elites are real. They, for the most part, don't understand rural people and do think they're smarter and better. And so the rural people feel this, and they're correct in that assessment. But the urban out-of-touch people are not the enemy. The enemy is all of the stories that presume separation. The enemy is the stories we create ourselves. The enemy is us. And we vanquish the enemy enemy by no longer fighting it because fighting it presumes an antagonism which is a polarity which is a separation of poles Mm -hmm. which is separation Mm -hmm. me versus the enemy separation Mm -hmm. me creating the pathological story where's the enemy Mm -hmm. the enemy disappears the enemy doesn't exist because we're no longer in a mental frame that's creating it So this is the spiritual work Mm -hmm. that accompanies the emotional work. And again, this is where we have to work on our own story creation process Mm -hmm. moment to moment Mm -hmm. to be able to deal with this. Right. Let it, let it emerge in the presence. Um, I, I talked to my wife a lot about the non-duality, you know, and, and how we need to, we need to find a third way a third way forward because both sides are, are just stuck in their sides and we need something else to emerge. And it sounds like you're saying a similar thing. And this yeah. Is What's amazing about non-duality is it at first it seems like this really abstract idea, mm-hmm. like quantum consciousness, blah, 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 something. That seems abstract. You know, <laughs> and um, like what, what the hell is that? Yeah. And all that non-duality means is that before our interpretation of things being separate Mm -hmm. things were already combined non-duality is the recognition that things were never separate to begin with it's all that it is there's even a a a guru in india who recently passed away named adi da and his phrase for this is prior unity Mm. prior unity is the recognition that things were not separate to begin with So it's not non-duality replacing duality. Mm -hmm. It's that there was never duality to begin with. There never was. 
we were taught wrong when someone told us that there was duality. Mm-hmm. There isn't. And so the recognition that we were always interdependent, the recognition that we were always embedded, we were always connected, mm-hmm. that is what non-duality actually is. Mm-hmm. But it's not abstract at all. So if I say, how, if you and I are two different physical bodies mm-hmm. sitting across the table from each other, doesn't that mean we're separate? Well, no. We're both sharing oxygen and carbon mm-hmm. dioxide and this air in the room. It is permeating the tissue of our bodies. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, we have a shared energy mm-hmm. of physical stuff. Also, we have a shared history. Whenever life started on this planet, roughly 3.8 billion years ago, there has been a continuity between then and now of there always being life on this planet and every bit of it being related to every other bit of it. So we talk about the web of life. It's not just everything alive today. It's everything that's ever lived on this planet. Hmm. So when we talk about prior unity and say, well, you and I are both part of the biosphere. We're both part of the living matter of this planet that we have common ancestors Mm -hmm. and not just common human ancestors, We have common bacteria ancestors that go back billions of years. (laughs) And so that's that's one of those things that sounds like the spiritual cosmic connection, because it is. is. But it's also a scientific description of living things. Uh All living things come from other living things. Mm -hmm. And the place where life started, where living things came from non-living things, Mm -hmm. there's a growing understanding of how that works. That's maybe another conversation to have a different time. Mm -hmm. But there's even continuity there. Mm -hmm. It's not that living things arose from non-living things that were separate. It's that non-living things had a configuration that could not create life. Mm -hmm. And then their configuration changed to enable life to emerge from within those things. They had prior unity. They were never separate. So this, this idea of everything is connected Mm -hmm. or that separation is an illusion is something that is compatible with everything that is validated and known about the universe. Everything that is validated and known about the universe, if you look at where it came from, it involved connecting the understanding of the thing Mm -hmm. to the thing, Mm -hmm. which means connecting our story about the thing to the real world. Mm -hmm. So even semantically, there's prior unity. So this idea that um, separation is the root of the problem Mm -hmm. is a really deep insight. There's a reason why all the great mystics throughout the ages have tried to teach us this lesson. Right. It's all about interrelatedness. (laughs) It's all about interrelatedness. Mm -hmm. And it's about health being defined in the context of interrelatedness right now. Mm -hmm. What is health? Health is vitality, thriving, resilience right now. Mm Well, right now, there's a lot of unresilience, mm-hmm. unvitality, unthriving. The disconnects have led to a place of unhealth. Mm-hmm. And one of the most pro- uh, profound versions of that in the world right now is wealth inequality. Mm-hmm. Wealth inequality creates a difference in experience between the rich and the poor. Mm-hmm. And the more dramatic that difference becomes, the more physical illness happens in the bodies of people mm-hmm. as they experience that separation. I have anxiety, I feel insecure, I feel uh, uh, unvalidated, I feel like I'm not worth something Mm -hmm. because someone else has more than me. Mm -hmm. 
If I have more than other people, I'm afraid they're going to come and take it from me. Well, in both cases, sickness comes from the inequality. So inequality is the measure of social illness. Mm -hmm. There's actually a huge body of public health research showing this. So I'm not just pulling this out of a hat. Well, I've heard about this recently. Like the 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 wider that gap gets, the shorter the lifespan. Yeah. Of the community. Of everyone. Of everyone. Rich rich and poor. Yes, rich and poor. Everyone's gonna die earlier. So the the (laughs) myth that the rich are separate from the poor, Mm -hmm. rather than the rich are rich because they're siphoning wealth off of the poor. Mm is the only way they could get rich mm-hmm. and the only way people become poor is that their environment becomes diminished mm-hmm. well how does it get diminished through extraction and hoarding mm-hmm. extraction and hoarding is also how rich people become rich mm-hmm. so rich people become rich by creating the context of scarcity for other people people who are in context of scarcity are there because this context was made scarce by extraction and hoarding mm-hmm. which is how the other people became rich there was prior unity so this idea that poverty is a natural human condition is total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Poverty is created by extraction and hoarding of wealth. Mm-hmm. That's how it's created. You don't become rich without creating poverty. Mm-hmm. Now, can we increase prosperity? Yes. But we don't do it through extraction and hoarding. Mm-hmm. We do it through symbiosis. We do it through resilience and thriving. Mm-hmm. You know, we do it through regenerative design. It's permaculture for human societies. Mm -hmm. So that's why all of these ideas that are floating around in the permaculture community and other similar communities, that's why they're so spot on Mm -hmm. and their practices are working Mm -hmm. because they're grounded in fundamental insights about interdependence. Mm So, I mean, speaking of permaculture, yeah. I mean, so that's like a connection to the land, right? And that and that has everything to do with, um, you know, how ecosystems work. And I think an easy way f- to get reconnected in in that type of way is just to spend time outside, you know, in natural space. And I know that we're we both share a love for the Northwest, and I just wanted to kind of get your your, your take on your journey. Well, I wanted to hear more about your journey, but I think that at this stage, like, I, I want to know more about your love for this place and 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 what what really brought you here and, and what are you passionate about. I want to hear a little bit about Cascadia, too. One of the things that always bothered me in the Midwest and that bothered my wife growing up in the Chicago suburbs was the felt apathy for the land. Mm -hmm. Like people would throw their garbage out the window. Um, The the prairie land would be turned into strip malls and housing developments Mm -hmm. if it was Chicago suburbs. Mm -hmm. Which Um, is where I grew up. Yeah. In the Chicago suburbs. So we would watch this, each of us in our different um, contexts, would watch this indifference to the land. Mm -hmm. And... We want beautiful places being made ugly. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was like identity forming and defining for each of us and something we shared in common when we started dating Mm -hmm. was that we wanted to be in a place where the land didn't feel like it was getting raped. And so that meant two things. That meant a place that the land is still beautiful, Mm -hmm. has not been degraded, 
and that uh, people in the place actively care for the place. Mm-hmm. So when we did our first bike tour, which was early in our relationship, we um, chose the Oregon coast, mm-hmm. just uh, you know, the way that we were looking on the internet and heard stories about biking down 101. And so we came to the Northwest for the first time to bike the coast of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And um, we stopped in Eugene, Oregon, mm-hmm. for me to meet a professor there because I was thinking I might do a PhD at the University of Oregon. And our car broke down and we got stranded there for a week while they were repairing the car uh, with our bikes and our camping gear. It's not gear. a bad place to get stranded. Yeah, it wasn't too shabby. <laughs> and so we fell in love with Eugene, Oregon. And um, after the bike tour was over, we went back to Arizona where we were living at the time and we waited another six months, but then we moved to Oregon. And um, what we felt when we moved to Oregon was the lushness of the deep green forest mm-hmm. of the Northwest. Mm-hmm. The rugged coastline, you know, the uh, the almost hostility, the um, the feeling of the ocean that the ocean is a place that is um, turbulent and a little dangerous, mm-hmm. vibrant. You know, when you go along the coast of Washington or Oregon, you see these giant uh, rock formations made from lava. Right. You can feel the violence of the landscape, mm-hmm. but not in a way that makes you feel like there's violence around you mm-hmm. more that this is a landscape you need to stay aware mm-hmm. because volcanoes happen here earthquakes happen here if i fall into this water i'll be smashed against those rocks so there's this need to be aware oh, that's an interesting perspective you know, yeah. there's this need to be aware of the things around us that keeps not just us it keeps everyone vigilant mm-hmm. We're not vigilant about protecting this land just because we love it. Mm-hmm. We love it because we notice it. Mm-hmm. We notice it because we have to be vigilant in it. Mm-hmm. We have to be vigilant in it because it's somewhat hostile. Mm-hmm. There's real wildness in this land. Mm-hmm. There are things that are bigger than us. Yeah, that's really interesting. And when you, <laughs> it, when there's a clear day and you can see Mount Rainier, we're living in the shadow of a giant volcano. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. You know? Yeah, if that thing erupts. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like I, I, uh, I better not have a time where I go an entire year without thinking about volcanoes erupting. Right. I don't need to dwell on it every single moment. Right. But I know that something that big mm-hmm. and that beautiful and mm-hmm. ominous mm-hmm. is only there because this landscape is alive. Right. This landscape is not static. You don't hike the Cascade Mountains named the Cascades because of all of the water that rushes off of them in the spring. Mm -hmm. You don't hike those mountains because they're serene. You hike those mountains because this is a rough place. Mm -hmm. This is a place that if you condition yourself to be in it, you're rewarded by its majesty. Mm. When you hike in the mountains here, you go to these places that are are big Mm -hmm. and rugged and beautiful, and you feel their aliveness in the sense of uh, you feel them changing constantly. Mm -hmm. In the spring, which in the mountains is like July, Mm -hmm. because there's so much snow, in the spring you feel the runoff of the snow Mm -hmm. carving the land. Mm -hmm. It's it's active. When you go snowshoeing or cross-country skiing or downhill skiing in the winter, you see the trees are buried. Those trees that you were walking under, you're now walking on top of. 
So throughout the year, you feel the landscape changing actively. This is a place that I have to pay attention because how it is now isn't how it's going to be in a month. It's not how it's going to be in a year. And that's something that is experienced in a young mountain range. This is a mountain range that's still growing. And, um, and so I think part of it is that. Mm-hmm. And Jessica and I talk a lot on our bike tours mm-hmm. about this experience that comes upon us. It usually takes about three or four days before we transition into it. Yep. And that is moving from the habits of our separated lives into the realness of being present. Mm-hmm. And the realness of being present on a bike tour is things like, I'm really hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm riding my bike with 70 pounds of gear on it mm-hmm. across a mountain range. I need a granola bar. <laughs> you know, like being hungry is this powerful thing mm-hmm. where you get so hungry really quickly that you, you have to pay attention to your mm-hmm. hunger. You well, know, that I'm we, really wet. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. There's a storm coming and there's no shelter. Right. Uh, we once got caught in a hailstorm in the Rocky mountains like this. We're on our bikes like, hail's coming. I hope it's not big because there are no trees. (laughs) That um, we became vibrantly present. Mm -hmm. Basically, we were forced, jarred into the present moment over and over again. And what we found was this distinct feeling of being alive. Mm -hmm. That when we would meet strangers on the road, there's this phenomenon that people who go on the road experience that strangers want to be part of their journey and you get all of these free gifts on the road people give you food they invite you to share their camp with them all these they buy you a beer and it's because they feel your aliveness Mm -hmm. they feel their lack of liveness like they are in black and white and you're in technicolor Mm. and they want to be a part of your aliveness Mm -hmm. so this thing of being on the road is being alive Well, hiking into the backcountry here, same thing. Mm -hmm. So in these places of vibrant aliveness, the landscape is alive and it's hostile and it's rugged. It doesn't mean it's scary or even that it's necessarily dangerous, Mm -hmm. but just that you have to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a fundamental feature of Cascadia, Mm -hmm. where this is a place that as the landscape changes, people will respond to it because they're simply aware. I love that. That's beautiful. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. So I think that's a basic piece. And um, there are other other pieces about the humility that comes in being a landscape so much bigger than us, mm-hmm. that the forests here, even though a lot of the old growth is gone, um, even the second growth now is some of it's fairly mature again. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not a 300-year-old forest, it's a 90-year-old forest. Mm-hmm. And it grows so fast here. Um, the ferns are so big, you can feel the kind of prehistory. Mm-hmm. You can feel the world that was before humans were here, mm-hmm. even though we can't really know what it was like. Right. Um, this connection to deep time, and that, and that evokes a kind of secular spirituality that even if you're not religious, mm-hmm. you feel humbled. Mm-hmm. You feel the sacredness. You feel awe and reverence. And I think that's another thing that uh, the Pacific Northwest just triggers in people i love it and and you said uh what was it last week when, when we met your your buddies started the whole cascadia movement well yeah so <laughs> i so i met these guys after they had started it okay uh, they're a group of kind of uh, uh anarchist hippies 
<laughs> and and all of them are, are geeks. They're total geeks, just like nerds extraordinaire. Um, and you know they like dress in strange clothing and have tattoos and like you know they're they're very much like nonconformist okay. kinds of people. Yeah. Um, each in their different ways. Uh, you know they're the kind of people that are a collection of misfits, and that's why they're friends. Okay. Um, but one of the things that means is that they look for other people who feel comfortable among misfits. Mm -hmm. And another thing about the Pacific Northwest is that this is the country of uh, explorers and pioneers. Mm -hmm. Not as extreme as in Alaska, where you really experience that even more than here. Mm -hmm. But all of the people who ended up here came here as explorers of some kind. Mm -hmm. Even us, coming from the Midwest. We ventured to the frontier. Right. Where is the frontier that's not as cold as Alaska? Well, it's British Columbia or it's Washington. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. we are on the frontier mm-hmm. and that frontier mindset, I think was really important for the, the Cascadia independence project. Just a couple of people that started it halfway as a joke. <laughs> um, and I say halfway as a joke because they'd like it to happen, Yeah. but they didn't really do it expecting or, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't serious political organizers, mm-hmm. but they also recognized the seriousness of what they were doing uh-huh. and they did it playfully. So they did things like got a group of artist friends, had a competition to create a, a flag for Cascadia. <laughs> and now if you go to a Sounders game, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll see them. They're all over town. Well, you see you them go on to cars. You know? yeah. yeah. You go to Portland, you'll find that while Seattle and Portland have this huge soccer rivalry, yeah. we also will like tip our beers in the pub. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you're my enemy in sports, but you're my friend because we're Cascadians. Right. We're all drinking Northwest beer. <laughs> right, you know, like, right. you can see it. Yeah. There's this, this feeling. And, uh, and so the, the Cascadia Independence Movement is really a beautiful example of how shared culture creates politics. Shared culture becomes political when politics demands it. Mm. And one thing that happened just after the election this year was the CalExit conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is California saying, well, you know, the we're UK, yeah. or maybe we're out. Yeah. Well, where did they get their inspiration? Uh-huh. They got it from the Cascadia, Cascadia. Independence Movement. Mm-hmm. And where is Cascadia defined? It's basically British Columbia, part of Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and Northern California down to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't have a very specific boundary, mm-hmm. but it's basically this Pacific Northwest feeling mm-hmm. extended. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, the people in Northern California, like Humboldt County, mm-hmm. they're Cascadians more than Californians if California means Orange County in L.A. Right. They're much more like people in British Columbia than people in L.A. Mm-hmm. And you can feel it mm-hmm. among these, these coastal forest people. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that the, uh, um, the fault line for the big earthquake will do damage if the whole thing unzips between... Vancouver, British Columbia, and Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And so the Cascadia fault line, mm-hmm. the, the New Madrid, or, um, the um, uh, Juan de Fuca fault line, mm-hmm. is a way of defining Cascadia. And w- if it yeah. opened up, where would the line be? Where, you mean the fault line? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a subduction zone, so the fault line is actually in the ocean. Okay. It's where the ocean plate is going under the continental plate. And where and when it does that, there's a displacement. It goes under the continental plate and goes into the continent, 
and where it, at the end of the ocean plate is is where magma comes up and that creates the range of mountains. Okay. That's how the Pacific Ring of Fire is created. Mm-hmm. So the Cascadia Mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains are all formed by these subduction zones. And the one that is creating that creates the risk of this big earthquake runs from off of like Vancouver Island, mm-hmm. so up into uh, British, British Columbia, all the way down through Northern California to about Sacramento. Okay. Cascadia. It's an 800-mile-long fault line. Wow. And um, so the direct risk of this big earthquake is that entire region. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that uh, culturally there is a shared sensibility in a landscape mm-hmm. that has a subduction zone that creates mountain ranges mm-hmm. like this and that creates coastal forests like this. Because one thing about the Pacific Northwest is that there are very few aquifers. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Because we have all this volcanic rock creating granite that causes runoff back to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then we just have ice pack and rivers into mm-hmm. the ocean. And they all run west. You know, living in the Midwest, it's weird to be in, to see a big river that goes from east to west. Right. Here in the Northwest, all of them do. Mm-hmm. Because of the mountain range. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the one exception is the Columbia River, which is a big snake. Right. And, and has its own unique history, but it ends up running west, mm-hmm. turn out into the ocean. You know, um, so so this this conversation about Cascadia is really interesting mm-hmm. to see the prior unity, the shared experience of landscape, mm-hmm. creating a cultural continuity between people. Mm-hmm. Canadians and British Columbia are more like Washington and Oregon people mm-hmm. than they are the rest of Canada. Mm-hmm. Just like Washington and Oregon people are more like British Columbia than the rest of the United States. Mm-hmm. So the the landscape is able to shape us culturally and our cultural identity here. Whereas in other places they've been able to modernize, meaning They've been able to create an experience of separation. You go to Chicago, doesn't matter what the landscape was like before. The artificial landscape dominates. Mm-hmm. Here, the artificial landscape can be destroyed by the next earthquake. Mm-hmm. And it's fairly young. Mm-hmm. The cities here are not as big or old as the ones out east. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, so we have more of a real ecology, mm-hmm. including the human ecology. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. You can feel it. It's all around us. Mm-hmm. Walk out of my house and all these trees mm-hmm. on our street, you feel it. It's mm-hmm. all around us. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Yeah. I I was going to get to the, the Pope's encyclical. We didn't get to that. Mm. We, we're going to have to do this again. Too many stories. Too many stories. Too many stories. No, but this is good. Um, I appreciate you taking the time for sure. Yeah, no, no, it's good stuff. Yeah. I enjoy the opportunity to just kind of ramble on it, actually, because it's having it kind of getting out in a conversation mm-hmm. is um, it's a good way to do it. So where can where should people look for you and your work? Um, my Facebook page. Joe Brewer. Yeah, it's I think it's Joe Brewer dot thirty one. I think is you know the way that Facebook okay. created one for me. Um, but uh, go to my Facebook page and you'll find it. But uh, we have derules.org. Um, it's an organization I work with. Um, the Cultural Evolution Society, which is through the Evolution Institute. There are a couple of places, but really it's more find me and the people I'm talking with than mm-hmm. the organization I work with. Because mm-hmm. I kind of work in that community relationship sort of way. The network. The network, That yeah. you created over the last 12 years. 
Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it's like the uh, we are we all of us are always our networks, mm-hmm. but some of us are gardeners of our networks. Mm. And I'm a I'm a gardener of my network. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks. So, so why I'm able to do the stuff I'm doing on Facebook now is I've uh-huh. been cultivating this network mm-hmm. so that it can do this. Mm-hmm. It's not just like anyone on Facebook is going to easily do this. It's like I, I've already removed all the bullies. Mm-hmm. And any bullies that appear, I block them. I prune <laughs> the network. I love it. So, um, And there's enough of a concentration of people who understand the rules of, the, of interaction. Mm-hmm. We have substantive conversation. We don't do name calling. We don't tear each other down. Mm-hmm. We don't. Um, we don't just drop by and say things that don't contribute to the conversation. Mm-hmm. These are all social norms, mm-hmm. and they don't. Uh, they they weren't made explicit. It's not like you have to sign a little consent form. <laughs> you know? But people find that this is what's happening, and they do it, and they appreciate it, mm-hmm. and they see people not doing it, and then they kind of diplomatically police it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we don't do that around here. Mm-hmm. You know, you might want to restate your comment. Sometimes my Facebook friends will tell new Facebook friends that they should edit their comment. Mm-hmm. Like this, you know, this is Joe's thread. You shouldn't do right. that there. That's helpful. Yeah, you're on the same team. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's creating ambassadors of culture. Love it. So yeah, fun stuff. All right, thanks again. Totally. So that was Joe Brewer. What'd you think? You still with me? Pretty amazing guy, uh, doing some really great stuff. Um, just a heads up, if you do find him on social media and you're following his stories, um, you should uh, be aware that he's having a baby this month. He may have already had a baby. He and his wife, Jessica, are having their first child, so he's not as active as usual. Um, I didn't mention that he does have a Medium page, too. Um, he writes some really great articles on there, so check him out on Medium. And then if you want to uh, visit me anywhere, well, in person, I'll be out in the woods, like I said, uh, every other Saturday, first and third Saturdays, and you can see the calendar of events at chiesty.org, C-H-E-A-S-T-Y.org. And the Emerging Future website is going to be hosted at lyman.space, L-I-M-E-N.space, slash emerging future so you can check that out and um, i have some show show notes on there and some links to some things that uh, joe joe mentioned so thanks for sticking with me and we'll talk to you soon